So then how are we able, how is this possible for us? How are we able to live with God despite our sinful selves? Well, it's the purification on offer to us through the shed blood of Jesus and faith therein. With our, uh, well, we've called it a summer series, but we're kind of moving out of, uh, we're kind of moving out of summer now, aren't we, into September? But um, we started this in the summer, so until we finish it, it's going to be our summer series where we're looking at a minor, the minor prophets. Uh, one every week, we have been looking at uh, what they say, what they mean, because oftentimes it's not explicitly clear, is it, with with some of the minor prophets, what they're actually talking about, why they're saying these things. And, uh, but we've also made time to see how each one of them points us to Jesus in some way. We're doing this because of, uh, that's what the full counsel of God's Word teaches about the minor prophets. And you think about passages like in John chapter 5, we read that Jesus is speaking and he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. So we're looking at a minor prophet a week and how it points us to Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul is talking and he says that we are changed from glory into glory by beholding Christ by faith. Not by reading the Bible and applying the principles and morals to our lives in our own way and in our own power. And of course, that's a good thing to do, to read the Bible for sure, and to, to see the, the morals and the principles in it. But it's not the, the, the primary goal of being a Christian, is it? Our primary goal should be to know Jesus and to make him known and to behold Jesus and to, and to reflect him and witness him to those around us. Nothing else will change us. We know really we're not changed by our efforts to live a, a super duper uh, moral and uh, you know, a, a good life. We know that we're changed by encountering Jesus in the word of God. So today then, what book are we looking at? Well, we're looking at Zechariah and we're just gonna look at the first eight chapters and the major theme of purification. So look at Zechariah one to eight and the major theme of purification as, uh, as with other weeks, a few background facts about the book and the author. It's a very messianic book. Um, there are around 40 references or allusions in the New Testament back to uh, Zechariah. He was a Levite born in Babylon, and his name, which is shared with about 30 other men in the Old Testament, means that the Lord remembers, which is quite a good name for an exile born in foreign in a foreign land and the captivity. You know, don't worry, God, as God remembers you. God will never forget you. Kind of like Jeremiah 29, 11, plans for a hope and a future, not you and your bad hair day. When you get out of bed, you think, don't worry, God's got a plan for my day. I'll just wear a hat. Uh, Zechariah was a, as a friend, a contemporary of Haggai uh, that we talked about uh, last week. He was a contemporary and, uh, and we can... We can logically think friends with uh, Zerubbabel, the governor, great name, and uh, anybody pregnant with a boy, I'd wholeheartedly encourage you to go with Zerubbabel as a name. I'd love to come to the hospital and pray for baby Zerubbabel, and, uh, and Joshua, the high priest. 
Haggai preached four short sermons in four months and then kind of disappeared off the prophetic map uh, two months after he started. So kind of in the middle of Haggai's ministry, Zechariah appears and uh, he's trying to encourage people to spiritual renewal, which is quite a lofty goal. But he does that by sharing with them God's plans for the future because God's future plans should always motivate us in the now. He writes with kind of differing styles. There's some apocalyptic stuff, which means that there are things being revealed to us. Uh, There's some exhortation. So we're being uh, lovingly encouraged to do some stuff. And there's some poetic oracles, which means he's giving a real strong, heavy words uh, in the form of uh, a poem. It's pretty long. Uh, It's 14 chapters. It's the most major of the minor prophets. And... uh, Chapters 9 through 14 are a little bit different. So with that being said, we're going to split Zechariah over two weeks. Today we'll look at chapters 1 through 8, next week 9 to 14. The week after that, we're going to get into Malachi, and we're going to finish this study in the Minor Prophets. And the week after that, so what's that, three weeks from now, we're going to resume our uh, verse-by-verse study of Hebrews that we paused before the summer break. So Zechariah 1 to 8, this big theme of purification. Uh, If you're not already there in your Bibles or on your apps, please do go there now. And uh, we're going to see what did he say? What did Zechariah say? He starts with a bit of an introduction in chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. And he says, in a nutshell, don't be like your ancestors. Don't be like those people who have gone before you. Uh, So read with me uh, Zechariah 1, and we'll pick it up in verse 4. He says, Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commended, my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. So uh, talking about your fathers, those who've gone before you, they didn't take what was coming seriously. They didn't take the coming judgment seriously. They didn't really pay attention to the, the preaching of the, the prophets and from, from those people to these people in Zechariah, there's this 70-year uh, Babylonian captivity and slavery. And Zechariah is saying, where are they? Where, where, where are your fathers, parents, older people? They're gone. The time is short. So, so listen. Do some stuff. Act on what you're hearing. And, and don't be like them. Because they were carried away into slavery. And God will act. And then... Th- the rest of chapter 1 through to the end of chapter 6, uh, he has, he has quite, quite the night. Uh, he sees eight visions while he's lying on his bed, uh, plus a bonus at the end. So he has this, this awesome night, if we're going to use awesome properly, not like a awesome. He has this awesome night where he sees nine visions from God, and, uh, and they talk about a few different things. But it can all be brought back to that theme of purification. So the visions, these dreams, they're organized in a very, very interesting way. So this goes from chapter 1, verse 7, through to the end of chapter 6. And there are 
they're organized, uh, there are four lots of two. So the first and the last are very similar in theme. The second and the seventh, kind of lose numbers, the third and the sixth, and then the fourth and the fifth. So they kind of, they're arranged very interestingly. And uh, so we'll look at what they said and what they mean for us as well. So the first and the eighth, we see horsemen, we see chariots, we see horse riders, we see, we see people coming, we see a bit, of, a bit of judgment, we see God's anger against nations, against the nations, and, and God's blessing on His restored and purified people. God says, I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, my house shall be built in it, so my presence will be with you again. My city shall overflow with prosperity, and the Lord again will comfort and choose his people. But earlier we read that the people were not really doing it right. They weren't really paying attention. They've not been paying attention. They've not been doing their best to live the life that, that God wants for them. But yet something has changed here because Zechariah is looking forward to a time when God would look at his people and they'll be pure in his eyes again. And this is kind of paired with uh, the, the last vision of the eight that's in chapter 6, verses 1 to 5, is it's divine judgment again on Gentile nations, so nations around God's people. And there are shades here of, uh, of revelation and the, the four horsemen. There are four of these guys riding around as judgment coming. But yet there is also peace. We read, those who go toward the north country I've set my spirit at rest in the north country. So there is judgment coming, yes, but, but also peace. And we start to think, Zechariah's readers start to think, is, this, is, is he talking about the Messiah? Is this, is this the right time for this coming prince of peace to come? But then he carries on and he, he almost starts talking about the, the past again, the second vision, the seventh vision, dream, this, this past sin that led them into exile. And we see that there are horns and there are craftsmen and it's all, there's lots of images and lots of uh, symbols and the like. So this second one, chapter one, verses 18 to 21, God's judgment on the nations that are afflicting his people. And we read, we read a couple of times in the Minor Prophets that, that God will, will judge sin and evil, yes. But we've seen this consistent thread that he always takes care of of his people. God is the God of all people. He holds all accountable. Uh, yes, he holds all to that, that righteously divine standard. And he loves all and he wants all to be pure in his eyes. Craftsmen, uh, horns, there are a few different theories as to uh, what Zechariah is actually talking about. But this is most likely looking back to, to other prophets and saying that, look, God uses nations to judge other nations. He raises up this group to go over there and, and, and give out the divine judgment, and he raises somebody else up to go and give them what they're due. But we know from, from the, the full counsel of, of God's word, and I think it was a, a few weeks ago in Nahum, that one day this, this cycle of nation against nation bringing God's judgment, this cycle is going to be broken, and that, that somebody is coming to put an end to this cycle of judgment, 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 judgment. Somebody is coming to, to put an end to this cycle, to purify all nations once and for all. 
And this goes really well together with uh, the seventh vision of a woman in a basket, obviously. I mean, you, you read this and you think, yeah, there's judgment coming, there are, there are horns, there are, there are craftsmen. So obviously, the next thing is to put a lady in a basket and to fly her away. Uh, this woman in a basket is a symbol of just centuries of sin, rebellion, and this basket is, is flown away and put on top of one of those, uh, you know, one of those, uh, the, put on top of one of those uh, brick pyramid, forget the word, one of the brick pyramid things, and uh, it's held up as like, whoa, what God is purifying and, and, and purging out of his land and his people is then flown away in a basket, obviously, uh, in the form of a woman, obviously, to be, to be en- enthroned and enshrined almost in, in, in another land. We'll call it Babylon. Uh, thinking about Revelation. And it's held up as like, wow, this is right and this is worthy. But, but God is saying, no, this judgment, this sin, this rebellion, it's going. It's only a woman because most likely the word for iniquity that uh, Zechariah used in Hebrew is feminine and gender. So there's no, there's no other reason behind it. Uh, women are not more sinful uh, than men. Wives, you would give me a big amen to that, living with your husbands. Uh, if you're not married, you've probably encountered a man at some point uh, in your life, and uh, God's Word tells us that all fall short of the glory of God. So this is not a, wow, women are really bad, let's put them in a basket and fly them away to the top of a tower. <laughs> we read in, uh, in, in verse 6 of chapter 5, And I said, what is it? It's the obvious question when you see people with wings flying a lady in a basket somewhere. What is it? And this this explaining angel says, "This, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. So again, it's a symbol. It's a, it's a, a way to show the removal of sin and rebellion against God, symbolic of God's people being purified, and this stuff just leaving. And as a result of that, we become acceptable in his sight. We are purified in his sight when this sin is taken away from us, when he looks at us and sees us as pure. Because somebody has taken this, this sin out of our lives and has, has dealt with it for us. The third vision, the sixth vision, he's talking about New Jerusalem. Again, we've talked about this with Revelation. This this beacon of purity, this, this beacon to the nations around it of, uh, of, of purity. And in chapter 2, there's a surveyor with a measuring line. I don't know about you, but when you see surveyors at the, the side of the road with the, the, the tripod thing and the pretend camera on the top, don't you just want to go and stand in front of it or kind of get in the middle and kind of I don't know they're not taking a photo, but there's just something about when you see somebody by the side of the road doing this you think, yeah, I'm going to be in the picture. But here there's a surveyor with a measuring line in chapter 2. And this is God's future blessing on his restored and purified people. Uh, elsewhere in his word to us, we see that a measuring line is used to, to, to see if we measure up to the standard. Uh, when you are putting up a shelf, you take that long metal ruler uh, with the bubble, and you, you put it on your shelf, and you see if the bubble is between the two lines, don't you? You see if that shelf is, is uh, 
flat, straight, same, same. And if you've done it yourself, it, uh, you know, it's, you've probably done a good job. If you get somebody in to help, maybe not. Maybe you've got to re-drill the holes and, and, and do it again. But uh, you, we use that kind of thinking all the time. We measure stuff to see, is this straight? Are we coming up to standard? And uh, Amos talks of a plumb line, which is essentially a piece of string with a, a, a stone on the bottom that looks perfectly straight. And Amos talks about a plumb line and, uh, with, with reference to the absolute straightness and, and pure standard of God's word. Here, it's a, it's a measuring line. It's a plumb line. It's a spirit level when you're building. It's a ruler when you're at school. It's the same thing. We need something that's perfectly straight to judge other things by. And there's a huge encouragement for us in, uh, in verses 4 and 5 of, uh, of chapter 2. There will be so many people living in this new Jerusalem. God will be the protection in this, in this wonderful heavenly place. God will be the glory in the midst of this. Again, we're thinking, he's, he's thinking way forward now. Where do these purified people, where do people who are in right relationship with God, where do they go and live? New Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth. And we read in chapter 2, Verse 5, I will be to her, this, this town, this, this place where God's people are going to go and live. I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. How encouraging that God's purified people will live with him and he will be in our midst. The next one again is something something's flying. It's a flying scroll. Uh, in chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, and, uh, and this just shows us the, the absolute severity, how severe and how total divine judgment is on individuals. We're individuals and we're saved into a, a community, uh, yes. I, for me, I, I just don't get it when people say that they're, they're walking with the Lord, that I'm a believer and I'm, I'm a Christian, but I'm not into going to church. Because all throughout God's Word, we see that believers gather together. It's, ju- it's, just, what, it's just what we do, isn't it? So we're individuals, yes, we're saved into this community for, for edification, and we think about the proverb of people sharpen people. You know, we need this kind of this fellowship, we need this community, but we're within this community. Then we're individually responsible for our actions. We're individually responsible for our own spiritual uh, growth. There's no corporate blessing uh, that simply sitting in a room with some Christians doesn't make you a Christian. Uh, Therefore, you're going to reap the rewards. There's no corporate blessing anymore. Like, this might burst some bubbles, like David and Goliath. Just think about that. Contrary to most... Are we going to say that? Yeah, we'll we'll say it. Contrary to most teaching on David and Goliath, David and Goliath is not a story about you and me defeating our, our demons. David did it. Pick up your stones and you knock that giant down. It's about one person 
who defeated a seemingly undefeatable enemy so that everybody around him and connected to him benefits from his victory. But that's not how it works uh, anymore. Being uh, here, being physically present in church, like we said, uh, sitting in church doesn't make you a Christian. There are no, uh, there's no corporate blessing anymore. It's the same kind of thinking that, you know, if you sitting in church doesn't make you a Christian. Sitting in McDonald's is not going to make you a cheeseburger. And sitting in Starbucks is not going to turn you into a bad cup of coffee, is it? It's just, thankfully. But being part of the group is not enough anymore. We're individually responsible for our own spiritual growth. Simply sitting and, and being part of the, you know, there's no corporate blessing anymore. So this scroll comes and it points to the individualness of, of, of uh, purity that we all must attain. But if you, if you stop and you think we are, we, we'll turn it into a question, can, can we ever, can we ever in our own power, even if we're you know, encouraging each other over bad cups of coffee, can we ever come up to God's standard of, of purity for our lives, God's, God's standard for living? Are we, can we ever, 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 ever get there? Or do we deserve to be in the basket, flown away to sin town? You just think we're never, ever, ever going to work our way to this standard of purity that God requires for us to be in His presence. The scroll really shows us the, the purity that's, that's needed, and it's in, the, it's in the form of Scripture. And we said before, didn't we, that God's Word, Scriptures, point us to Jesus. So we will never, ever, ever, ever achieve that level of, of purity on our own and our own power, even if we get a little group together and we encourage each other and we make some notes about it and we start a WhatsApp group about it. We are never going to do that. This flying scroll, the scripture, points to something and somebody that is going to get us there. Then the fourth and the fifth visions, Joshua and Zerubbabel, sin is removed and, and, and faithfulness leads us into the presence. We see the, the, the cleansing and the, the crowning of Joshua as a high priest. Chapter 3 is a great chapter. It's not very long. Uh, we don't have time to, to read eight chapters altogether, but I would encourage you to go away and read Zechariah chapter 3. Joshua here is being made pure before God. It's a, it's a great picture of our salvation. We're, we're accused. Joshua's been accused. We are accused, uh, if we're honest, uh, often correctly. We're accused, you know, it's not really an accusation, it's just the truth about us is pointed out. We're accused of being clothed with filthy garments. We're, we're, we're clothed, again, if, if we're really honest, we, we are clothed in unrighteousness, in sinful thoughts, in wor sinful words, and sinful actions. And our enemy, as was the case with Joshua, wants us to know and wants you to remember that all the time. Just, you are not good enough. So why bother? 
You are never, ever going to get there. So just stop. You're never, ever, ever going to get there. But Joshua is made pure and right in the eyes of God, and he did nothing. He didn't do anything. We read, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you. I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Priestly clothes, new clothes. Joshua did nothing there. I have taken away your iniquity. I will clothe you. And for us, what are we to clothe ourselves in? Think about that wonderful hymn, nothing but the blood of Jesus will make us whole again. We think about what can wash away our sins. How do we get rid of this, uh, the sinful stuff, the sinful clothes that Joshua was wearing? How do, we get, how do we get out from under that? What takes us from being crimson red to, to pure white? And again, like the hymn says, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen? And then we're told, we're actually told that this is a preview of something else. We're not left to make this jump, to make this connection. We're actually told in verse 8, Here now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, sees everything, knows everything, is complete. I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. So there's peace and there's prosperity and there is purity where Zechariah is looking. We read about my servant, read about the branch and we read about the stone. And we know, don't we, that the servant of God is the one who comes to do the will of the Father. We know that the branch, the branch of David, the, the, the root of David is the Davidic descendant. So just somebody who's come through David's family tree will rise to power and rise to glory. And we know that the stone this stone brings judgment as a, as a stone of stumbling for those who don't believe. But for those who do believe, we said this first and second Peter, this stone is, is chosen and this stone is precious. And it's a, the cornerstone by which everything in our lives is built and organized. And then in chapter 4, the fifth vision, we see a golden lampstand and two olive trees. God's people, as, as the light to the nations, lamps, make, uh, lamps display light, don't they? And these two trees that come together, Joshua, the priest, Zerubbabel, love saying that, Joshua, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the king, these two offices are brought together, these two these two formerly separate elements of leadership in God's eyes are united and brought together with one person. The branches, we've got priests, kings, Joshua, Zerubbabel. But again, it's a, it's a preview. It's looking forward to something else. It's not the end of the story. We're looking forward to this Messiah, God's chosen coming rescuer, redeemer, 
who will join these two offices of priest and king. Then in chapter 6, verses 9 to 15, it's this little bonus vision at the end, by itself at the end, and uh, Joshua is crowned. Joshua, the high priest, is given a crown as king. And this just would not have happened at the time. Priests were not crowned as kings. Kings did not serve as high priests. We read in chapter 6, we'll pick it up, verse 12. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. So at the time... uh, This was written, Zechariah, we said it was about, what, 520 BC. Priests wouldn't become kings. Priests wouldn't sit on thrones. But we read here that Jesus will unite in himself the offices of of priest and king. And we read, there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. We've said this before, we'll say it again. Jesus is the way to peace. Amen? We, we, we can't come together, priests and kings. It, it needs to be in one person who can truly reconcile the two sides, the two approaches to peace, the priestliness, the, the, the kingliness. It needs to be one person. And then chapter 7 and 8, a bit of a conclusion. Chapter 7 is, is quite similar to the, uh, the introduction, uh, a call to repentance. You know, so now you've heard this stuff, do something about it. Remember it, receive it, repent, do, do some stuff, change your mind about this stuff. And chapter 8 is uh, the kind of the, the, the blessings that are coming as a result of these nine visions. We read in chapter 8, verse 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness, and in righteousness. East country, West country, we're talking about all nations here. Again, it's just a figure of speech for people from all nations, tribes, and tongues. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. So Zechariah had quite quite the evening, didn't he? uh, Being shown uh, all this stuff, all these visions of, of coming uh, purity, the fact that, that even though they're rebellious and lazy and have got this natural inbuilt bent towards the, the sinful, something was going to happen to change this. More was coming. And in fact, the best is yet to come. Something was going to happen that unites God and man once again, that allows that, that deeply personal relationship where we can be in his presence where our impurity is not a barrier to fellowship with God. Zechariah is talking about this person who goes between, somebody who mediates between a righteous, holy, pure God and you and me. Somebody to stand in the gap, a branch. So what did he mean? Well, he means that someone is coming to stand in that gap. 
We read chapter 3, verses 8 to 10 again. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Faithfulness and and the, the fruitfulness that comes with this person, the life that is available, the purity that's available. And again in chapter 6, we read, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And it's really interesting that the branch will rebuild. He shall build the temple of the Lord. So at the time, remember, the Haggai's trying to whip people up into action to, to rebuild the temple. So this is actually happening at the time. And Zechariah's saying, sure, good, but th- there is an, another temple, there's a, a, a different temple coming that this branch will build. A temple of, 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 of purity and of, of peace and of people we read in Ephesians chapter 2, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, a temple, to be a holy priesthood, to be in the presence of God, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. This branch is building a temple of himself and of his people. So then how does this point how does this point us to the greater reality of, of Jesus? Where's the gospel in Zechariah 1 to 8? Well, we can't look past this, this branch. Zechariah is filled with, with visions and, and imagery that, you know, if we, if we dwell on them, we're probably going to get lost in the details. But this angel sent to Zechariah to explain everything keeps pointing him to this coming purity, this, this, the, the branch that is coming to put this right. This branch will purify his people and remove their sin in one day. We read in chapter 3, verse 9, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Whereas the, the gospel in Zechariah then is that Jesus came to remove the consequence of your sin. Maybe you don't feel very uh, pure. Maybe you're a little bit discouraged. Maybe you don't see much purification happening in your life right now. Zechariah at the time was writing to a group of people who were discouraged. They've come out of exile. They're living in this, this ruin of a town. They're living in a day of small things. Remember last week we said they started building the temple and then all the older people in the group came by and said, this is rubbish. This is nowhere near as good as the old temple. And that made them sad. 
this, what, what, what you're doing isn't, it's just not that good. So they're living in a day of small things. There seems to be little progress in their lives towards this glorious future that God's word promises. And maybe that's you, but God says in chapter 4, verse 10, whoever has despised the day of small things. So if you're a little bit down about how you perceive things to be going in your life, whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. And we said, didn't we, that Zerubbabel last week, Jesus is the ultimate uh, Zerubbabel as, as, as Messiah, as king, as now we've established priest and king. So if you're discouraged and if you're feeling impure, if you don't really think there's much going on in your life at the moment, then stick, stick with it. God always finishes the work that he starts. You know, he who started a good work and you will bring it to completion. And if it feels slow, don't, don't worry. It just, it, maybe it is slow at the moment. But don't worry because we read, we will rejoice. We will see the presence of God in the person of the word of God, this great king and high priest the greater and ultimate Zerubbabel. What a great name. In chapter 8, again then, verses 7 and 8, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. God promises that this is a whole life change for people from all nations. And this is you, and this is me, and this is us, all nations, tribes, and, and tongues. If you're fairly new here, just look around. This is what we're talking about. They shall be my people. I will be their God in truth and righteousness. That is, that is you, and that is me, and that is us. I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. And again, we, we, we're looking forward, we're looking way forward, we're looking to Revelation, end of things as we know it. We're thinking Revelation 21, the dwelling place of man will be with God. We're reading Revelation 21, and I heard a loud voice from the throne about which we've just read. There's this wonderful priest and king on the throne. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So then how are we able, how is this possible for us? How are we able to live with God despite our sinful selves? Well, it's the purification on offer to us through the shed blood of Jesus and faith therein. Amen? How are, we, how are we able to live with God? The purification on offer to us through the shed blood of Jesus. Alone, we're never, ever, ever, we're never going to get there. We're never going to reach that level of, of righteousness. Try as we might. 
We can never work our way to God's level of, of holiness. We can never be as pure as we need to be to be in his presence. But to that we say thanks be to God who sent Jesus, the word become flesh, God in the flesh, to be this branch. To stand in the gap for us between God and us. To live that, that perfectly pure life. To die that perfectly pure sacrificial death. And to be the first fruits of resurrection. So that those of us who believe in him. Who believe that God raised him from the dead. Can be viewed as pure and right. And good enough by God. And we can be in right relationship with God through what Jesus did. So then, Zechariah points forward to a time when this would be available to the people. Because at the moment, it's not, is it? This is 500 BC. He's pointing forward to a time when this would be available. They are looking forward. They've got such... We are on the absolute right side of this. They are looking forward in expectant hope of purification. For us, it's already happened They are looking forward to a future time. And for you and for me and for for us, the time is now. Amen? Amen. So we're going to spend a moment or so praying about this individually. Father God, we, we gather before you, we assemble before you as part of your global church, that church, the body of Christ. And today we pause and we reflect and we look back to that amazing saving sacrifice that shed blood of Jesus for us father to this we we say thank you we say that we believe and we pray that you help us in our unbelief father we do believe and we pray that you help our unbelief father we thank you that we live here and now where we can look back to the cross that our faith is one built on, on fact. And Father, we look forward to the day when we can be with those in heaven who had to look forward. And we thank you for their patient endurance. We thank you for their faith. We thank you for their expectant hope. And we pray today that you fill us with that same hope a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul that looks forward to Jesus coming again, looks forward to the day when we can be in your presence through the faith that we have in his shed blood for us. We know that we will never work our way to being as pure as we need to be, to be in your presence. So we just thank you again that we can confidently and expectantly look forward to this through faith in your servant, in in the branch and in the stone, the sacrifice that you sent for us. Father, we love you, we praise you, we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.